This morning, I'm preaching a message that I've entitled, There is Hope. I don't know if you've seen that anywhere. This morning, this sermon really serves two purposes. For the 14th time in as many years on this second Sunday in January, I've had the great honor and privilege to stand before you behind this pulpit and proclaim a message that serves as a vision message for our church for the next 12 months. Often as the calendar turns, it serves for us as an opportunity to reassess, to take inventory of who we are, where we've been, where we are, and where we believe God would have us to go. And so the theme and the focus where I've landed this year for us is just that, there is hope. The other purpose of this sermon this morning is to introduce this expositional sermon series we're beginning through the epistle 1 Thessalonians. Now, I don't think the obvious reasons for which such a theme has been developed need to be thoroughly rehearsed. They're emblazoned upon our psyche. We have gone through an incredibly tumultuous year. In fact, I believe we are smack dab in the middle of a tumultuous, difficult season of uncertainty. There is societal uncertainty. There is medical and health uncertainty. There's financial uncertainty. There's educational uncertainty. And there, of course, is political uncertainty. These are days of an unprecedented nature. In my 52 years of living, I've never seen anything like this. And if the Lord should tarry, there will be chapters written about this year in the history books to be written in the future just like chapters you've read in history books in school. And because of the uncertainty that abounds, because of the upheaval and the crises and the turmoil, there are many of us, I would venture guess most of us, have had moments, days, perhaps even weeks of discouragement, disappointment, depression, and even despair. You may be here this morning, and there may even be resting upon you, even right now, a spirit of sadness about all that's happening. What is the Bible's answer to these things? What is the Bible's answer to these times? Well, I would point you to one single solitary verse in the book of Psalms, chapter 42. Here's what the Bible says. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil, within me. Hope in God. The answer to discouragement, the answer to depression, disillusionment, and even despair is straightforward and clear. Hope in God. If we're going to follow this command of Scripture to hope in God, it might do us well to understand just what that means. How do we do that? Well, much of what we do this year that I'll be outlining a little bit later in the sermon, will hopefully engender this type of hope in us. You know, most of us use this word hope perhaps dozens of times of day, a day without even really thinking about it. As I've been coming around this theme for the last couple of months, I've been particularly conscientious about my personal use of the word hope. And I'll tell you, most of the time when I use the word hope, it has nothing to do with biblical hope. Now, that's not to say that it's necessarily wrong or evil or sinful to use the words in those ways, But our common, everyday understanding of hope can cloud the meaning and the truth of biblical hope. So how do we normally use this word hope? I would say it's 
pretty much just wishful thinking. Wishful thinking. (laughs) I hope I get that job. I hope my team wins on Saturday night versus the Washington football team. Oh, I don't have to hope that. They did win. (laughs) I hope that this sermon won't be too long. Good luck. (laughs) The hope and the way we normally use it in our everyday language has to do with, one, something in the future. Number two, something that's relatively good or desirable. But number three, something that is uncertain. We don't really know if I'm going to get that job or if this sermon's going to be short. And in that, how does this differ from biblical hope? Well, biblical hope is the exact opposite of the way we use hope. Not in the sense of we want something good or desirable, and not even the sense that it deals with something in the future. It's in this sense. Worldly hope is always uncertain. Biblical hope is always certain. It is ironclad confidence. It is assurance in the promises of God that God is who he says he is and God will do what he says he will do. We hope in God. And here's the reality. We all long for that kind of hope. We all long for this kind of confidence and assurance in good things to come in the future. But the great dilemma for us is this, and uh, John Calvin, the late theologian of the Reformation, 475 years ago, identified our problem in these simple words. He said, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We have this desire to hope in things in the future that will sustain and last and have confidence, but our human heart perpetually creates and manufactures idols through which we think we're going to achieve that goal and that God-given desire. So, for instance, we hope in education. If I can just go to the right school and get the right degrees and get the right diplomas, diplomas, this will ensure a good and pleasant future. If I can just get the right career path, the right job, and the right salary, if I can put my finances and my resources into the right stock market portfolio, This will give me a financial security in the future. We put our hope in modern medicine. We can say, boy, I sure hope that the vaccine is effective and it does away with this pandemic. We can put our hope, we've seen in the last couple of months, in politics. I hope the right candidate gets elected. I hope the wrong candidate gets defeated. This will ensure a good and pleasant future. We put our hopes in technological advancement and achievement. Now listen, these things in and of themselves are not evil and wicked. Okay, maybe politics is, but other than that, now listen, I voted in every single election I've been eligible to vote in since I've been 18 years old. I've got my diplomas and my degrees. I have money invested in the stock market. I work diligently at a fulfilling job to provide for my family. And speaking of modern medicine, I plan on taking the COVID vaccine when I'm eligible. The problem comes, listen, when all these things become our ultimate hope. That's when they transform from gifts of common grace from the Lord to idols. How do we know when these things transform into idols? Here's how. One word. Obsession when we become obsessed with them. 
I don't think anybody was obsessed with politics this last week, were they? They become an obsession, an idol. And we bow down before them and think, this is where our hope lies. We put our hope in, in our health, in our wealth, our investments. All these things become idols, and every single one of them, they're false gods that let us down every time. And when they do, where does that leave you? A downcast soul. Why are you cast down? Oh, my soul. Why are you in turmoil within me? Quit focusing and obsessing on all these false gods you've manufactured in your heart. Hope in God. Here in this community, we have an incredible, absolutely ingenious example of modern-day engineering and technology. I'm referring to the TVA Reservoir on Raccoon Mountain. Most of us here, I would venture a guess, have been there multiple times. It's just five minutes from where we sit right now. Uh, Wade and I were talking this week, and he has been here in our community for seven years, and he conservatively estimates he's logged in the biking and hiking trails over 3,000 miles. God bless him, right? (laughs) On Raccoon Mountain. But this place is not a modern marvel because of its hiking and biking trails. It's a modern marvel because of what it is, right? If you go to the top of that mountain, you will see this massive man-made lake. This lake, it covers 528 acres. Is that incredible? The lake is, get this, 230 feet deep with over 100 billion gallons of water in it. How did that water get there on the top of a mountain? (laughs) Well, this reservoir is basically a massive battery, right? It's a battery. As, As electricity is generated in the TVA systems of rivers and dams and hydroelectric plants, when there's a low demand for electricity in our region, well, the rivers keep running and the plants keep producing electricity, so the excess power is used to power pumps, which pump water to the top of that reservoir, when there is a high demand of electricity, what, it, what happens? Well, then that lake is drained slowly, and that gravity-fed water turns these massive turbines that then generates electricity in times of need. So like a battery, it's charged with electricity, and like a battery, it drains electricity. Isn't that awesome? Now, why do I bring this up? My point here is this, this reservoir of energy is very much like a reservoir of hope that's within every believer of Jesus Christ. As we hope in God, our internal reservoir is filled up, our battery is charged, and then it's from that reservoir of hoping in God alone. We then have the power, we have the energy, the dunamis, to do what we're called to do, to live the Christian life. Let me just give you one verse that very clearly and succinctly illustrates and describes this truth. Look at Romans 15, 13 on the screen. The Bible says, may the God of what? The God of hope. Do what? Fill you, charge you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the reservoir in Raccoon Mountain. This is the battery of hope in our souls. Do you see how this works? So if there's something you struggle with in your Christian life, and I could give you dozens of examples. I'll just give you a couple. If you're struggling with forgiving someone for a wrong suffered, 
I would say it's because your reservoir of hope is very low. You see, because hoping in God is resting with strong assurance that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do. So when God says throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, things like, don't be deceived, God's not mocked, whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. When God says over and over again, vengeance is mine, I will repay. When we put our hope in those promises of God and that nature of God, we can let people off the hook because God says, I'm putting them on my hook. (laughs) We can forgive when our hope reservoir is filled. If you struggle loving people who are difficult to love because your hope reservoir is low, if you have difficulty being generous with your resources, you're not believing the promises of God. Your hope reservoir is low. If you can't seem to overcome a general anxiety or fear about the future, about life, it's because your hope reservoir is low. And so the answer to that issue is to hope in the ironclad promises of God. Here's just one of literally thousands of promises you can preach to your own soul. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to what? To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Friends, if you just mull over, if you just contemplate and ponder those three short verses, you will see the reservoir of hope in your life begin to fill up. We all from time to time have the desperate need for that to happen for our reservoir of hope to be filled. And so by God's grace, over the next 12 months, that's what we will endeavor to do, who we will endeavor to be. Our normal preaching diet here at Lookout Valley is what's called expositional preaching. That is, we take whole books of the Bible and preach through them verse by verse systematically, and this morning is no different. We're beginning a series this morning in the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. So again, hopefully you have your Bible open there. I'm going to read the first three verses of this passage. The Bible says this, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know many of you joined us Wednesday, either here in person or via our live stream online, but in case you didn't, on Wednesday night, I preached a message called Behind the Church in Thessalonica. We went back to Acts chapter 16 and 17, and we looked at some of the history of how this formed so that I could save us the time this morning. So if you want to know the backstory of this church, go to our YouTube archive and watch that sermon. But basically, in a nutshell, this church was formed, was made through much tribulation, through much hardship, through difficulty, persecution, imprisonments, and beatings. The apostle Paul planted this church with his partners in the faith through great affliction. And now, sometime later, after he was there for only about three weeks, he's now in the city of Corinth, and he's writing this first letter to them, this epistle to them. What is it that compelled Paul to write them a letter? 
We, they didn't have instant access to communication with each other. They didn't know what was happening with each other in the moment's notice. So what compelled him to write this letter? Well, he tells us two chapters later in chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. Look what the Bible says there. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you, the church in Thessalonica, he's come to us and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So again, Paul is now in the city of Corinth. The bruises, the scars, the very wounds from which he planted this church are still fresh on his body. And he's in this difficult city of Corinth, a vile, wicked, perverse city. What did Paul need? Paul needed just a small word of encouragement. Paul needed to to have some good news. He needed to know that something of what he's done through all his afflictions and hardships was bearing some kind of fruit. And it's at that moment that the Lord dispatches his son in the faith, Timothy, with this report from the church in Thessalonica. Timothy shows up and says, Brother Paul, I know it's been tough. I know it's been difficult. But let me tell you what's happening in Thessalonica since you've been gone. And Paul says again in verse 7, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. And it is this resultant uh, love and relief and exultation that gives rise to this epistle. Five chapters, 89 verses we're going to be studying over the next four and a half months. Now, with all that as introduction, let's turn our attention to these first three verses And with that, there are three primary truths I want us to notice. Number one, you'll see this, the significance of his salutation. The significance of his salutation. We might be tempted in the course of reading this passage to just kind of skip over verse one. I mean, after all, it's just Paul's greeting to them, his salutation. He's just saying, hello, guys. I mean, let's just skip over it. But if we did did that, we would do a great disservice to some of the truths that are here in this simple salutation. Three truths in particular I want us to see. First of all, I want us to consider Paul's personal identity. His personal identity. He identifies himself Paul. Now, the name Paul is not the same name by which he was given at birth, Saul. It's not the name by which he was known as a very advanced, educated, and very intelligent Pharisee and teacher among the Hebrews, Saul. The name Saul means desired. Saul was the desired one in the Hebrew culture. You wanted Saul to come to your synagogue to teach. But as a Christian and as an apostle called by Christ, he was not known as Saul, desired. He was known as Paul, which means small, little. Some have presumed that the name Paul refers to his stature. Tradition tells us that Paul was likely around four foot nine not a big man. (laughs) But I don't think the name Paul is primarily in reference to his physical stature and height. I think the name Paul, which he knew himself and made himself known as a Christian and as apostle, had more to do with his personal view of himself. Small, little. Here is this giant in the faith high level of intelligence, advanced education, and he regarded himself as small. In Ephesians 3.8, he gives his own personal assessment of his life and himself. 
He said this, I am the very least. Not of all the apostles, not of all the leaders in the church, the pastors, the deacons. I'm the very least of all the saints. Paul is the very epitome of the person that is used by God. Small, very least. What an un-American thing to say. I'm the least. I'm insignificant. But it is precisely that attitude that is used by God in this world. It's the fulfillment of what God said through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 66. He said, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Friends, this was the Apostle Paul. Humble, contrite in spirit, small. That's his personal identity. Notice, secondly, their covenant community. Who is it that Paul's writing to? He says, to the church. You might want to circle that word on your outline. To the church of the Thessalonians. That word church that's translated there, it's used uh, over 100 times in the New Testament. The Greek word there is ecclesia. The Spanish word for church. Any Spanish speakers here? None. Iglesia. Very similar to the Greek word ecclesia. It's a compound word. The original word ecclesia means out of to call or to call out of. It refers to those who are the called out ones. We'll see more about that next week. If you want to let your eyes scan down to verse 4, Paul describes this church as one who is loved by God and chosen, elect, called out by God. So the ecclesia, the church, is the called out ones of God. But in the secular world of language where Paul lived in that day, this term ecclesia actually referred to just a gathering of people an assembling of people. Now, most of the time in the New Testament, it it refers to the church gathering, but there's a couple of instances, for for instance, in Acts 19.32, when Paul is in Ephesus, and like normal, there's a riot that breaks out, a mob forms, and the Bible says there was an ecclesia of men. It's not the church, most certainly not the church. It's an assembled gathering group of people. So by that, we can give a pretty firm definition of what the church is. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is the called out elect ones of God who gather together. This is the church. This is what it means to be the church. And this is why our elders last year in May of last year, as we were trying to assess the relative dangers and difficulties with the pandemic, we determined as soon as possible to begin gathering together as a people. Why? Because that's what it means to be the church. The church assembles. The church gathers. We're not scattered. We gather. Now, we try to do that with safety and security. That's why even though it's a lot of extra work, we're maintaining two services so we can have social distancing. But we gather. We assemble as the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, meeting together on the Lord's Day each week. So that's their covenant community. That's his personal identity. But thirdly, I want you to consider in this greeting, in this salutation, God's promised security. His greeting continues, he says, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now that phrase, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, that particular phrase is unique to this letter. It's an unusual phrase for Paul's writings. What does he mean by that? Well, this phrase, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
is illustrative of our vital union as Christians with the Godhead, with the Trinity. Again, if you let your eyes scan down a couple of verses to verse 5, you see he says this gospel came to them how in the power of the Holy Spirit. So their identity, their security as Christians is melded into God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is their glorious salvation. Their salvation, your salvation, is not dependent upon your works. It's not dependent upon you keeping some set of rules and regulations. And here's why this phrase refers to their security as believers, because it means this. Their spiritual life is merged with the life of God. In other words, you will continue to be spiritually alive so long as God is alive. When God dies, well, then your spiritual life dies. Is God ever going to die? No. (laughs) You are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would say this often throughout his letters. I could give you dozens of examples. Let me just give you a couple. In, in, a, in the book of Galatians, written about the same time as 1 Thessalonians, he says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul would write to the church in Colossae, these words, your life is hidden with Christ in God. What is he saying? You're like in a God-Jesus sandwich. (laughs) There you are, floating down I-24. In God, in Christ, in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said something almost identical. What did he say? He said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. All three of my grandchildren, Carson, Nora, and Demi, love to play with Play-Doh at our house. And whenever we get the Play-Doh out, we always tell them, here's the ground rules. Keep the Play-Doh on the table where you're playing, and don't mix the colors. (laughs) Exactly. But inevitably, what happens? Look at this next slide. This will give you heart palpitations, right? This is what happens. Now, if you have ever tried to separate Play-Doh colors like this, you have experienced what is known as an exercise in futility. You can't do it. But to an infinitely greater degree, you cannot separate the believer from Christ. You cannot separate the believer from God. You cannot separate the believer from the Holy Spirit. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul asked a rhetorical question in Romans chapter 8. He said, Who will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? He says, here's some options. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or nakedness or danger or famine or sword? He says, no. In all these things, we are hypernikao. What is that? Overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. Then he goes on to say, for I am sure... (laughs) And neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, or anything present will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the powerful realities, Paul is communicating just in his hello, (laughs) in his salutation, in his greeting, is that these things are intended to engender in them a sense of hope, confidence, peace. 
why he concludes that with grace and peace. This was a very common saying of Paul in his letters to the churches, grace and peace. And though it's a common greeting from Paul, it's an uncommon reality in our lives. Grace and peace. Would you agree with me that this last week, these are two things we didn't see much of? Grace and peace. Yet the conflict, the hostility, the tribulation, the trials that we are experiencing in our world, as devastating as they may be, they pale in comparison to what the church in Thessalonica was going through. And Paul says to them, grace and peace. Here's a second thing, not only the significance of his salutation, but number two, the spirit of his supplication. In verse two, Paul then makes a prayer. He voices a prayer, a supplication for those believers in Thessalonica. What does he pray? He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. When Paul and Silas and Timothy got together to pray for the church in Thessalonica, they prayed prayers of thanksgiving. That was the spirit of their supplication. Why? Why why are they thankful to God for them? Well, they're thankful to God for, first, the grace in saving them, but secondly, the grace in keeping them as evidenced by their lives of faithfulness and commitment to the Lord. Paul is, again, at the, the time of this writing, in the city of Corinth, with all of its issues and struggles and difficulties. And God sends this message, this report through Timothy to Paul, who no doubt was weary, frustrated in the work. And as he hears the report from Timothy, he says, boys, let's pray together. Let's pray a prayer of thanksgiving for God's work of grace in this small church in the hostile city of Thessalonica. And this prayer of thanksgiving really kind of morphs and transforms into prayers of rejoicing on behalf of them. And that really leads to the third truth I want us to consider from the passage, the rejoicing in their reputation. There's a rejoicing in the testimony and the witness in the reputation that proceeds from this small church in Thessalonica. And Paul strings together three words in verse 3. Three virtues that if you're familiar with Paul's writings, he puts these three words together quite often. Faith, love, and hope. This trilogy of virtues he puts together in Romans 5 and Colossians 1 and Galatians 5 and probably most famously in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? What does he say in verse 13 of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians? He says, now faith, hope, love abide these three and the greatest of these is love. You see, as he's writing to the church in Corinth, a church that is divided and fractured over such silly things like which gift of the spiritual gifts is the greatest, divided and fractured over things like, well, what should we do at the Lord's Supper? Who should go first and not go first? Divided over things like, well, my favorite preacher is Paul and your favorite preacher is Apollos. Well, their division and fraction. Paul says, listen, listen, you got faith, you got hope, but the greatest thing, you guys need love. What's the final one he mentions to the church in Thessalonica? Hope. (laughs) Hope. This was a vital virtue for them to understand through this grave persecution and distress they were experiencing. Well, let's consider these three virtues as demonstrated in their lives. First of all, this church had a faith that functioned. They had a faith that functioned. He says, we rejoice, we give thanks to God because of your work of faith. You might want to circle that verb, work. 
It's the Greek word ergon, from which we get an English word ergonomics. Ergonomics has to do with design or engineering of something that is very functional. It functions. And Paul says, here's the thing about your faith, church. It functions. (laughs) It's working. This is the first evidence of faith. This is the first evidence of being in God's kingdom. This is the first evidence of being a part of Christ's church. We have a faith that functions, that actually works. Now, we know we are not saved by works. We are saved by faith in the work of Christ alone. There's no amount of work you could do. There's no amount of checks you can put on some list of do's and don'ts. There's no amount of deeds you can do that will at all cover your sin against a holy God. The only way for that to be covered is to trust in the work of Jesus. His ultimate work, his finished work on the cross. This is a hallmark of Pauline theology. You cannot be saved by your works. But also a hallmark of Pauline theology is every Christian is saved to work. (laughs) We're not saved to sit. We're saved to serve. Paul says this is evidence of your faith. You have a faith that functions. Here's the second thing. They have a love that labored. He says you have a labor of of love. Now, when we use that phrase, oh, it was just a labor of love, right? It's usually referring to something that's not that significant. Oh, I have a widow neighbor, and I I mowed her grass Saturday morning. It's just a labor of love. I bring coffee to my wife in bed. Oh, it's a labor of love. That's not at all what this term labor refers to. The Greek word kopos is not referring to a light job or task you can do on a Saturday morning. The word means intense labor, united with trouble and toil. It is arduous, wearying, involving sweat and fatigue. And he says, when we think about you, church, in Thessalonica, we think about a church that sweats. We think about a church that labors, that toils to the point of fatigue for the cause of Christ. And it's motivated by agape love, unconditional love, the very same love that caused Christ to toil and labor in the Garden of Gethsemane to the point of sweating great drops of blood. The same love that motivated Christ to carry that cross up a hill to Golgotha Golgotha, and to be crucified in our place. He says, we rejoice in the fact that you have a faith that functions, you have a love that labors, but thirdly, you have a confidence that continues. He says, steadfastness of hope. This word steadfastness here, the Greek word is hupomone. It's a compound word. The first prefix, hupo, means under, and the verb form, meno, means to bear or to remain, to abide. So literally, to bear up under, to remain under. So the ESV that we use translates it as steadfastness. King James Version translates it as patience. The NIV translates it as endurance. The New American Standard Bible translates it as perseverance. And all those words capture a sense of what this word means. You have this steadfastness, this patience, this endurance, perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What was it that fueled this endurance? What was it that fueled this reality? They had a reservoir of hope. They had a reservoir filled up in hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
biblical hope that's not wishful thinking. Oh, I hope Caesar gets voted out in the next election. Oh, wait, there are no elections. A hope in Christ. A hope in God that enabled them and empowered them to continue to endure, to bear up under great trial, hardship, and persecution. There is hope. As we close our time together today, I want to briefly share with you some of the initiatives and emphases we plan on pursuing in an effort to accomplish this goal of filling up our reservoir of hope, that our souls will be confident and assured with an ironclad hope. Seven things I want to point out. These aren't on your outline, but if you want to flip it over and write these things down, you can and hold us accountable as we seek to do these things. The first thing is this, is our preaching schedule. We utilize the preaching ministry of our church to hopefully, I use that word there as wishfully, to hopefully have hope, right? First Thessalonians is where we'll start our time together. That'll go from January to May, five chapters, 89 verses. And then I'll do a series I've entitled A Summer of Hope. And this will be what I've called before a topositional series where we take particular topics from the scriptures and we exposit whole sections, pericopes, passages in the Bible to preach on those topics. Then in September, uh, the Sunday after Labor Day, according to our schedule, we'll start Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. That's three chapters, 47 verses. And then that'll lead us right through to Thanksgiving. And in December, our Advent series will be the thrill of hope, right? As Christ comes into the world. So that's the pulpit ministry of our church. We'll be focused on filling this reservoir of hope. Secondly, we hope to spread hope through church replanting. Many of you have probably noticed that Ronnie and Carrie Brown have not been in our midst lately. He's an elder in our church. Where's one of our elders been? Well, Ronnie believes and our elders fully affirm that God is calling him to replant a church in Trenton, Georgia. This is a church that is a faith community church that's somewhat whittled down to just a handful of people. And Ronnie is there even this morning preaching the word to them. He's not yet been called pastor there, but yet he is in the process of helping them to organize, and he is doing that in conjunction with me and with our elders. We're writing a new constitution and bylaws by which they can be constituted, and we hope (laughs) to link arms with this church in the replanting, that they would be a lighthouse for the gospel where they are. Here's the third Emphases, and that would be our missions conference, our Hope to the Nations missions conference, March 21st through 24th. Like last year, our missions conference is planned for the end of March. But last year, it didn't happen for obvious reasons. We have already lined up guest speakers for Sunday morning and Wednesday night. We've already lined up a great group of missionaries who will be with us through that week. And just by way of celebration with regard to our mission's emphasis, you need to know last year, in the midst of a pandemic, this church gave more to global missions in the history of Lookout Valley Baptist Church. We got to celebrate that. Over $100,000 has gone through this church, out of this church, to world missions. Hallelujah. Come Wednesday night to our members' meeting to hear more good news. Here's a fourth emphasis, Songs of Hope Worship CD. Our worship team uh, is in the process now. We're selecting songs. We're going to take into the recording studio and produce 
an audio worship CD that hopefully will foster hope in our body. We hope to have that CD available for you by this next thing, number five, Easter Outdoors. On April 4th, Easter Sunday, you know, we had tried to have an outdoor worship service uh, back in the fall, and we were prevented by a two-day monsoon that came through the Tennessee Valley. So we've scheduled, and all these things are Lord willing, by the way. Lord willing, we'll have Easter Outdoors, and I've already got my sermon uh, written, not written, actually prepared to write. My title is Hope Beyond the Grave. It leads to the sixth thing. In the fall, September 10th and 11th, we will host and put on, Lord willing, a hope conference. This will be a Friday and Saturday conference, a two-day event, which will be primarily evangelistic in nature. I don't know if you're aware, but this year, 2021, marks 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 attack, September 11, 2001. So we hope to communicate to our neighbors, even in the midst of deep tragedy and despair and uncertainty, there is hope. And then finally, as always, we will have a church-wide Bible study in the fall uh, that as we join together in our small group, this Bible study will be designed again to foster hope, to fill that reservoir of hope. Now, we fully recognize these are lofty goals. This is an aggressive plan. Just like we sang about the last song of our worship set, notice what Psalm 127 says. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who, labor, those who build it labor in vain. We certainly don't want to labor in vain, right? We want to labor with a purpose. We want to labor under the direction of the Lord. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Will you join me in praying for this year? Will you join me in praying to the Lord of the harvest that he might guide us, that he might enable us and empower us to do his good purposes together, that he might accomplish in us the same marks we saw in that church in Thessalonica in verse 3. Have a faith that functions, a love that toils and labors, and a hope that endures. Why? Because our hope is centered on a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that leads to my last thought. As our hope is firmly fixed on Christ, we will know his grace and enjoy his peace, which empowers us to endure.